Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And today we have my dear friend Ken Ingram as our guest. And we're going to talk about something called relationship anarchy. And Ken is um, a martial arts teacher who's been on a journey of personal development and mental freedom since he was 14 years old. And that journey has taken him to many places where he's experienced awakenings to his purpose in life. And human relationship has been a huge part of that awakening. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about this particular relationship style from Ken. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, Sumati. Nice to hear from you. Nice to be here. Great. Yeah, so good to have you here. So, um, yeah, I saw I've always really enjoyed the writings that you do on Facebook about open relationship and various kinds of relationships. I enjoy the way that you think and your philosophies and your ability to articulate that. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit more about relationship anarchy. I saw you post something on Facebook about that you, that's kind of how you define your relationship style. So why don't we start by talking about, I know what the word anarchy means. In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary before we started just, to get a, a clear picture of that word, um, and often it's associated with societies or governments and law, but I know it can be used just as a general term of lack of obedience to an authority. So um, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about what does relationship anarchy mean? Well, for me, relationship anarchy is about freedom, and and for me, the term, and I'm a bit of an anarchist too, but for me, anarchy is just absence of government. I mean, that's actually what it means. So when we talk about governing and hierarchy, the idea of anarchy is that we change the philosophy that we have no hierarchy. And I think for most people, the idea of anarchy brings up images of chaos and disorder. And that's not actually true anarchy. That's chaos and disorder. So what anarchy is is, getting rid of the hierarchy of human behavior. So how that works out in relationship is what I've experienced in my life as I've begun to as I began to interact with people and discover what it was like to have interactions with people. I came to this conclusion much later in my life that I wanted relationships to exist without hierarchy. So I think as a young person, as a really young person, I was trying to follow in the footsteps of what was presented because I thought that was what was done. And I wasn't well socialized as a young person because I tended to stand out from the crowd a bit. I tended to question things a lot. I just tended to be a, I don't know, a rabble-rouser from some people's perspective. I've just never been a status quo kind of person. So, so that was the beginning. I just, I've always questioned uh, what's what's the truth and why why do we make the choices we make? Or when people say things to me I don't understand, I ask why. But what does that mean? And I think, or at least what I've observed, is that people often they often engage in a relationship with with these what I call where to force. Um, this happened, therefore this, 
we're engaging this way, where to for, we're going to engage that way. So there are these pathways and almost preconceived precepts about how relationship is conducted. So that for me, that the way I conduct myself is I don't subscribe to any of that. I'm not a status quo thinker, so that puts me in anarchy realm. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because you said so much already. <laughs> I'm going to follow up and dig a little deeper on some of these things. Um, so you talked okay. about, it sounds like relationship anarchy is falls in line with the question authority mentality and that you don't subscribe to preconceived precepts about how relationships are constructed. That was a good sentence that you said. Um, so, and then you also talked about freedom. So, and non, non-hierarchy. Um, why don't you start by, by explaining, like, what does non-hierarchical relationship mean, just for people who are new to that concept? Well, non-hierarchical, and even the, using the term comes out of my foray into polyamory. Um, non-hierarchical talks about the order of a relationship or the importance of relationship or how we how we engage other people according to what the relationship is. So the standard, generally speaking, is or, or what we're influenced by socially is the standard that sexual and romantic relationships are of the highest order, and that pertains to marriage and partnership. So anytime we talk about marriage and partnership, the presumption is that it's a sexual and romantic relationship. And in that order or in that circumstance, that's the highest possibility of relationship. So already talking about it as highest puts it in a hierarchical standard. It puts it on a ladder. And in non-monogamy, some people talk about that, the escalator relationship. So there's this way that you start off with acquaintanceship, then you become friends, then you become lovers, then you get married. So that's the mm-hmm. kind of the standard flow of a hierarchical view of relationship structure. And mm-hmm. acquaintanceship and friendship is at the bottom of that list. Mm. And I found that kind of problematic. And... I can recall a couple of situations in my younger life where I was interested in, in woman, one woman in particular, and that we had a nice vibe, and I really wanted to work on the friendship aspect of what we were doing, even though there was a strong, what I felt was a strong sexual chemistry or an interested chemistry. And without discussion, she took my presentation of that as a diminishment of what we were going to be. And then mm. I and I didn't even I didn't even pay attention and follow up to the reaction that it went that way because it didn't occur to me that friendship was a bad thing. And I had gone through the this aspect of being friend zoned as some guys like to call it when women aren't, aren't interested in them. But that never made sense to me. I was like, well, there's nothing wrong with being friends. You can start slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on my experiences in the military and just in life in general, I realized that moving towards a sex immediately is okay, 
but if we're not both on the same wavelength, that presents problems. So I felt mm-hmm. friendship was an excellent opportunity to determine whether I'm just completely hypnotized or is this something real. Now, that's not what I knew then. It took me 20-something years to figure out that language. <laughs> so Right. Well, and yeah, and how many of us have fallen in love with somebody because we thought we were in love, but really it was sexual lust. And right. as, as, soon as, the, as soon as the new relationship energy wore off, we're stuck with this person that we don't really even like that much or have anything in common with because <laughs> we pursued the sexual energy. So I love your reframe around, you know, women who put you in the friend zone is a great thing because if you can become friends with this person then your chances of long-term partnership skyrocket. Exactly. And I understand that for some women, there's a whole game in the status quo perspective around relationship. So sometimes it can be a bit of a game that some women play, depending on what their socialization is, to put a guy in the friend zone to see how interested he is in, he is in them, which is already a poor strategy for creating sustainable relationship. And, it, and you know, mm-hmm. it works for some people. They like to play that game. That's okay. I don't think any of it is bad or good or anything. It's just what you want. But I think overall, well, yeah, it, what it's I like, learned... It's like, sorry, go yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying overall that I respect that being... there's not. I'm not being put in the friend zone. So a woman is saying, well, I'm not interested in you in you sexually, and I'm also not closing off the possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one well, way to look the, at the, the so-called friend zone. Right. And just that whole mentality of the friend zone comes from this patriarchal um, cultural mentality of um, it's all about conquest. It's all about a sexual shortage for men, and we must find ways of conquest and find ways to have sex because otherwise women aren't going to want to be sexual unless we somehow conquer them or (laughs) immediately turn them on before they change their mind. (laughs) Yeah. It's a strong caveman ethic behind that. (laughs) And and uh, to me, it, it somewhat devalues women's perspective and relationship dynamics with men uh, because the presumption is a woman can't make a choice about what she does or doesn't want to do. And and then, again, is the hierarchical idea that friend is a low-level entry into interaction, which is yeah, already screwed and I wanted up. To so talk it, about that a little, yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little mm-hmm. more, too, like some examples of non-sexual relationships that are very important and our society tends to only value the sexual relationship. So one example comes to mind of a long-term married couple or a long-term pair of people who, you know, are kind of past their sexual connection, but they're still strong partners. They still have maybe a business together or a family or an empire, and they're still very much partnered in life, but sexuality is no longer of interest to them and they may have an open relationship or not, but um, that's still a very important relationship. What are some other examples that you can think of of important relationships that are non-sexual or non-romantic? Uh, mentoring relationships. As a, mm. as a martial arts teacher, I 
think it's extremely important to develop rapport and intimacy with people I teach because, for me, I want to take people from where they are. It's not about imposing mm-hmm. doctrine on people, which I know occurs in, in a lot of places in martial arts, but that, even, that isn't how I was taught. I was taught how to troubleshoot and question my own self, and with the group of three other guys that I trained with for 10 years, my teacher got us to collaborate with each other. So it was never competitive. And that, and so he mentored us in how to be mentors in our teaching. The mentorship, mm. is, it happens everywhere, as a priest, as a teacher, in many, many circumstances. And, and I've developed crushes on teachers and things like that. And that's not to say that it's inappropriate, but depending on the nature of the, of the mentoring relationship and what's appropriate for the mentoring relationship, those are places generally where a sexual or romantic interaction isn't fulfilled or, or consecrated. Mm-hmm. And, right. and so once, once we get past the infatuation, we can develop respect. And I think what tends to happen, though, is people get lost in those infatuations and they kind of violate the boundaries of that mentorship. But that's certainly a place mm-hmm. if we gave more respect to the idea of intimate friendship and platonic friendship, it wouldn't be a danger for mentorship to go that way. Right. And I also think of um, there's such a thing now happening more and more where people choose to be co-parents and they've they've never oh, been yeah. romantically or they're, maybe they've been in the past, but they're at the time not currently interested in a romantic partnership but they know that it's too difficult to raise a child alone, so they've developed either a co-parenting model or a group parenting model where they've made a commitment to each other for the rest of this child's life, um, even though they don't have a sexual relationship. And I think that's really beautiful because they're committing to raise a child properly in a community. Right, absolutely. I think that's a really great way to engage and and to contribute overall to the human family in a way that that elevates us, that helps us elevate and and frees us. It creates a new mm-hmm. model of how to relate. And and it also breaks out of out of this uh, patriarchal religion influenced paradigm of how you're supposed to do it this way. In fact to mm-hmm. me, I can do it any way I can well please, as long as the people I do it with are in agreement with me. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, right, an, to me, that's an important part of freedom. Right. Yeah, consent. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to do consensual right. things with people, mutually consensual things, not coercion, not stuck in, a, you don't have much choice. I want it to mm-hmm. be a free and open choice about how we interact. Right. And so uh, let's talk about what the naysayers might say about this for a minute. <laughs> um, what, <laughs> what would you say if somebody said, oh, you're just avoiding commitment? Well, number one, that's a projection. <laughs> because someone will have to know me well in order to make an assessment like that. And if they knew me well, they wouldn't make that kind of judgment. So without, mm-hmm. so without knowledge and without a adequate assessment, naysayers often what they present are just judgments. And it's kind of, to me, it's a mistake in 
understanding skepticism. So skepticism is not, uh, what would you call it, just just the perpetual negative attitude to everything. That's just pure pessimism. Skepticism is Mm -hmm. about asking questions. So if someone Mm -hmm. were to ask me, well, do you, like to rephrase that question as a naysayer, for it to be a genuine question, a, a genuine inquiry, it would be to take a projection out of it and, and ask, well, why do you choose that? Do you have some, does this allow you to engage without making commitments? Like that would be a better way to ask that question where I would feel engaged to ask it. But the other way I would be like, mm-hmm. well, don't worry about it. <laughs> I just set it up right away because you're projecting. <laughs> but to indulge the right. question maybe as an, as a valid question, it isn't really about a commitment issue cause, because throughout my life I go through cycles of engagement. I'm, I'm more of an introvert naturally from a natural perspective, which just means I like a lot of alone time. Uh-huh. But I also enjoy people. I like people in general. And certainly I like people that I like. I really like them. And even then I'm hard-pressed to involve myself a lot of time in relationship dynamics if we're not evolving who we are. Mm-hmm. So I I have a hard time spending a lot of time with um, dalliance or playtime because there's so much work that I want to do in my life, so many things that I want to do that engaging in relationship is inherently about commitment. I definitely commit mm-hmm. my time to people. And mm-hmm. so I have to be very careful about it because I don't have a lot of time to mm-hmm. commit. And right. with with the perspective I take on it, if everyone is important in my life, I'm not placing anyone above anyone else. It's just a matter of respecting the timing. Sometimes mm-hmm. the people I want to hook up with in the timing is not, just not great. Like, I feel mm-hmm. good, but they're out of sorts, or they're traveling, or they're doing things. And by having that ethic, I was able to come out of these jealous modes that I would go into. Because my form of jealousy usually arises in feeling left out. Mm-hmm. So if I feel left out, that's when those emotions that a lot of people like to call jealousy would come up for me. But mm-hmm. if I see someone I like or enjoy or have a partnership with, enjoying an interaction, intimate act, interaction with someone else, that's not what makes me fume or, or feel left, feel like I'm not important. It's if I'm not included. If I'm like, well, hey, I saw you with so-and-so. No, you didn't. Or I don't want to talk about it. Well, then I'm like, well, why are we engaging if we can't share who we are? So that mm-hmm. to me, that's a kind of commitment, a commitment to, to engage honestly and with truth. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of commitments. And that's another thing about the status quo is uh, there's this, like, one note around what jealousy is, what commitment is, what love is, what romance is, what sex is. There's all these one-note vibes around all of these things. These are all these where-to-fors I was talking about. Where-to-for, we had sex this one time, now you got to call me tomorrow. What if I don't want to? Does that mean we don't have sex again? Does that mean I'm an asshole? Did we even discuss what it means? Did we have a discussion before we had sex? Did we have a discussion before we went out on our first date? 
Did we discuss what our intentions are, what our desires are, what we really want out of interaction with other human beings, what we want on a partnership? So there's a lot of ways to commit, and I'm just, I'm really meticulous about it, which is mm-hmm. annoying to some people, I think. Maybe a lot of people. <laughs> so when I think about relationship anarchy, I think of the lack of a primary partner. So um, a lot mm-hmm. of open relationship models are based on the primary partner or the nesting partner, and then that couple goes out and finds other people to be with. So I'm imagining that that doesn't exist in relationship anarchy. So how does that – and I'm fascinated by it, and I've even been to one relationship anarchy group meeting, and my mm-hmm. relationship, which has been has been primary for many years, is anarchy. Anarchistic-ish. <laughs> um, yes. We don't live together. We have a lot of freedom as far as what we want to do, um, but it's not fully anarchistic. So I often wonder, like, what happens if one person that if you're seeing multiple people in an anarchistic kind of way, what do you do if one person is feeling like they really need support? Um, maybe their cat died or a family member died or they had a bad car accident or something and you're off with another partner. Um, how do you handle those kinds of situations? Well, that's, that's a really good question. I think I haven't really been in a primary partnership at all in my life. Uh, and that's mostly out of circumstances because there were certainly a time in my teen years where I thought the first girl I had sex with was who I was going to marry and be with for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I was kind of a little princess about my idea about what a relationship was. But, and, and that's not to say that's, that's bad. And that would still be interesting to experience, which I did in a couple of circumstances, but it was a, um, yeah, it was just an interesting dynamic that lasted for a couple of years. I think in the in terms of partnership and support and emotional support, the relationship style shouldn't really affect that because for me it's about human behavior. So if I'm spending time with someone and someone else that I that I have intimate connection with is feeling emotional need, I would do the best I could to balance it. And I would ask for support from the person I'm with to give emotional support to that person. And there has mm-hmm. to be boundaries on it as well. And I think in all relationships, mm-hmm. we have to know our limits and our boundaries. And we have to talk about what our expectations are. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly something that should come up. And I would hope that because I've developed a connection with someone, I can anticipate that that kind of emotional need would come up. And and hopefully be prepared for it. And you can't prepare for anything in most things in life, but you can be ready to adapt to a moment. So I think I would, I yeah. would just say, look, I, you know, I can give, tell me what's going on. How are you feeling? What's going on? I would try to resolve it as best I could, and I would ask for understanding for the person that I'm with to give some human contact to another person I love. Right, think, and the example I, I gave probably wasn't. Sorry. sorry, the example I Go gave ahead. probably wasn't a very good one because I gave some extreme examples. Like if one of your partners, 
had a family member die, then hopefully your other partner will understand an extreme circumstance like that and either let you go or go with you to support that person. But I think a better yeah. example might be if one partner is just feeling a little jealous and needy and they they had a bad day. You know, <laughs> they'd, right. they'd really like to be with you because they had a bad day. Um, that's when it's a little touchy and there's a gray area there of um, kind of, it sounds like it kind of depends on how close all of the people you're dating are to each other. Yeah, to some degree. There's also this thing that comes up for me that is another where to for in our standard way, the status quo relationship. Is there is this unspoken rule that your partner is also your therapist, which I find mm-hmm. problematic. <laughs> Right. So that's what that situation, that milder situation is. I'm having a bad day, and I'm feeling off, and I want attention, but why do you want attention? I mean, um, there's a way that we kind of wipe our bad energy off on each other. An intimate relationship is one of the places we do that without thinking. Mm-hmm. So for me, in discovering relationship anarchy, it spoke to some of that what I, which I didn't like, as an element of romantic sexual relationship, now I have suddenly have this responsibility to be this therapist who doesn't really have power, but is at the beck and call of the person that I'm sexing or romantically mm-hmm. involved with. When in mm-hmm. fact we should be taking advantage of professional therapy to to mm-hmm. dig under. Like, so why are you feeling? Because I go through that. I go through those moments where, man, I feel lonely, and for me. I'd rather just sit with the discomfort of the loneliness and dig into why do I feel that way. Because I remember having a moment of existential angst at the age of 12. It was a bright, sunny day. I was looking out the window of the house, and I just had this existential dread. I didn't know what it was then, but I just had this moment of nothing fucking mattered. It was all bullshit. And I was only 12. Mm. Wow. So it was just a sensation. Now, almost 40 years later, I can I can look back on it and I can explain what it was. I know what it was. It was just a sensation that was happening. There were circumstances in my life that had built up to this one moment, and I just hadn't paid attention to it. It was all these interactions mm-hmm. in elementary school and with my parents and with my siblings, and all of it came into this one moment of feeling, and I just wanted to run away. So these mm-hmm. things happen. I mean, we're human, so all of this happens. I think first and foremost, for me, part of relationship anarchy is having a boundary around what I'm available for emotionally, but not to the extent that it's, that I'm uncaring. It's just understanding what my limits are. So I've I've never gone through training as a therapist. I've been through training as a personal coach so I can definitely help people see what they don't see which to me that's what a coach is that's what my position is as a martial arts instructor is and I'm helping people get to the information they already have or show them practices that help them strengthen who they are in these different ways that they want to evolve so in terms of relationship my limit I have some limits on what I can do emotionally to help someone get past something but certainly Support is one of the things I'm committed to in the people who are in my life. I'm committed to being supportive as much as I can. 
Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Ken Ingram about relationship anarchy. And Ken, you mentioned that relationship has been a huge part of your awakening to your purpose in life. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Yes. So um, some of the things that are going on for me now are new revelations after, I don't know, jumping into many different things in my life. After high school, I joined the Marines. Um, I, I flunked out of my first year of college at SF State with a high ideal of being a biochemist and a neurosurgeon. And that went down the tubes really quick. I wasn't ready. It wasn't time. I had the intelligence, but I didn't have the discipline or the direction, the personal direction. I was doing things to appease family. I was trying to get my father to love me by doing what I thought he thought was important. So going into the Marine Corps, I met people from different places in life. I got tested in terms of my integrity my personal integrity in, in certain personal relationships, a couple of times in particular, and I realized that I was lacking in character. And so about halfway through my four-and-a-half-year tour of duty, I decided I was going to finish my time, and I had discovered this guy named Carlos Castaneda, a couple of his books, and I mm-hmm. spent all night reading them. And I couldn't understand most of it. I mean, I, I probably understood every other thought that he was putting out in that book, but it really <laughs> galvanized me, and I and I understood this word enlightenment. I was like, what does that mean? And Buddha, and all these ways that we can be different in our life. And I was like, well, this is the path I'm going to take. Uh, I mean, I I thought I'd be an officer in the Marine Corps. I thought I'd try to get an officer program, but at that moment, I realized that it wouldn't develop my character the way I thought this journey of enlightenment might. And it's a lifelong journey. And I'm not enlightened. <laughs> and I don't know if I ever will be. But what occurred, what has occurred, and looking back, I can say that all of the relationship interactions I had with people over the course of the last 20, almost 30 years has contributed in some way to my understanding of what it means to interact with other human beings with integrity, with compassion, with care, and with consideration. So for me, if the relationship has care and consideration as a foundation, well, now we're talking about a friendship, and if we have concern and all of these other things that are just simple human behaviors, then we have the seeds of creating something sustainable going forward. So I want to develop lifelong connections with people. And even if the romantic sexual aspects of certain relationships change, I don't want those people to go away, which in a status quo version of how we see relationship, when you're no longer, and again, that's where the hierarchy kind of gets in the way. Well, if you're no longer a lover or romantic partner, then you have no place in my life anymore. That's the status quo version. And that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Because every Mm -hmm. person I've had a relationship like that with, I'm still friends with, at least from my perspective, and the way they've responded, they've stayed friends with me. And that's been beneficial because I've evolved 
from who I was in those relationships because certain women really put me to the task and I and I stayed open and allowed it. And so that helped me change. That helped me helped me recognize some ways that I acted with male entitlement. There's there's ways I acted very sexist. Um there were a lot of things about my behavior that I didn't think I had that when the relationship shone the light on it, I was really hard pressed to deny who I was being. Mm-hmm. So it really mm-hmm. opened me up. So relations, and and that's not just with women I've been with, but it's men that I have as friends who called me out on behaviors that I was doing. One close friend who was a training partner in martial arts for almost twenty years, about twelve years ago, he really put me on in the center on a passive aggressive behavior that I had had for many years, where I would just you know I'd get angry at people. And not tell him what I was angry about, and then build this resentment. He said, "You got to stop doing that shit. You got to stop doing it. Say what the truth is when it's happening right there." And and that was one of the times that I really heard this guy. And I started, I started figuring out how am I going to practice being honest. So I worked on being vulnerable, just out of just with no impetus, no reason, if I felt like there was something that I was embarrassed or ashamed about, I shared about it in a public forum online. And I just shared it. And and what I got was vulnerability is not it's not a weakness. It's actually a weakness not to be vulnerable. Because you can be easily manipulated if you have shame that you haven't revealed. So all mm-hmm. vulnerability is is saying how I feel and I don't make it other people's problem. And so I practice doing that. I still practice it, but I reel back in on the unbridled nature of being vulnerable. I, I share it with people who, who can actually receive it and honor it and respect it and take it and use it. Who also... Yeah, you have to be vulnerable, vulnerable, but with boundaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, I had to experiment a little bit, and I found the... I found the happy medium of being vulnerable but also being open. Mm-hmm. And that became important. So that's so coming to now, so over all this time, all these different interactions with people have people have been models for me. And certain people have been great models of where I wanted to go and great models of where I didn't want to go. So everyone's been valuable. Right, definitely. It's definitely a spiritual journey. I believe that. Um, you talked about being friends, still friends with all of your ex-lovers, and that's quite an accomplishment. It's very rare that somebody could say that. So do you think that you have always been somebody who can just stay open-hearted when a relationship transitions to something else, or did you have to work at that? How how do you think that? Why do you think you can say make such a statement that you're friends with all your exes? Well, there's a little bit of both. Because certainly until until I came out of the status quo version of what relationships were, there's certainly people in in my history that I'm not friends with that I had those aspects. But I was also fairly not very sexually active. I wasn't into chasing women as heartily as some men are. Even though I, I kind of wanted to, it just felt like it wasn't 
it wasn't going to be productive in my life overall. Like it wasn't going to develop me in me a character that was sustainable. But I'd say mm-hmm. the last six or so women that I've been with, I'm still friends with them, and that possibility has always been in me. I just didn't know how to exercise it. Mm-hmm. And certainly one of them, we did, you know, we had kind of a bad quote-unquote breakup and didn't talk for about five years. But then another person that I was seeing, there was this strange three degrees of separation situation that occurred, and the more recent person got me to recognize some things about that more recent relationship, and I began to have an appreciation for what that woman put up with because I wasn't the easiest guy to get along with. I was in my deepest um, closed-mindedness about some of my behaviors. And so I gently made contact, and she had never, to her credit, she had never written me off. She just backed away and mm-hmm. left me alone because she was mm-hmm. always more of a polyamorous person anyway, so she just mm-hmm. wanted her friend back. And that's when I began to understand, because she talked about that a lot, and that's when I began to understand what she meant. The first time we had sex, she was like, well, are we still going to be able to be friends after this? And I said, yeah, but it was reflective, because I was like, I'm going to get laid. I just, sure, we'll be friends. But in the course of that interaction and really seeing the value of friendship, I began to understand what was important. So... Some of that capability was in me, but I was also filled with some behaviors that makes me just like everybody else. So it took a little work. And, it, again, it took the influence of a couple of other more recent lover relationships to wake me up to what was important, what I needed to do, what I needed to practice. And so at this stage, what I find is important is we tend to have this thing where we want to change habits, but we beat ourselves up because we don't have a really great paradigm of discipline and change. So what I call it is practice. And like when I practiced my trumpet in high school, when I played trumpet, I wasn't great when I started, and I wasn't fantastic when I finished, but I was adequate. I I could play. And my playing got better when I practiced. And when I practiced, I made mistakes in playing notes. But some notes I really enjoyed, and I would really get into them with a fervor. And certain certain notes and scales, I was like, ah, I really like this one. It resonated. And so I would play it more, and I would do it more. And so practice is just doing it, doing it, do it again. Ah, oh, it didn't quite work out the way I wanted. Okay, well, I'm not going to wallow in the failure. I'm going to accept that that's where I failed. That's where I need to work strong. I'm not strong there where I failed. So I'm going to do what it takes to shore up that place where I keep falling and get stronger there. And then all of a sudden, wow, now I can do that thing that's easy. And then when it's easy, then you start to embody it. And embodiment is when things are as reflexive as sneezing. You don't think about sneezing. Mm-hmm. You don't, there's so many steps to a sneeze that it would be impossible to think about sneezing. You'd stop. You go, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so w- when we have embodiment of these things that we're conscious of, they become sneezes that we have control over at every stage. And all we have to do is just think about it. So to me, that's the enlightenment part. The enlightenment is just having more consciousness about certain steps of choices that we make. Right, and I like how you talk about kind of being in the moment and not wallowing in the mistakes that you've made in the past, but instead 
kind of having some self-compassion about that and saying, well, how can I learn from that and move forward with, with the equipment I have now? Um, and that's not always mm-hmm. easy to do. That's, that's a practice, like you said. That's, I think that's what made it it's something I continue to pursue. I realized it was a practice. I've done martial arts since I was 10 years old in some form or another, and I got really strict formal teaching when I was around 17. Then I went to the Marines, and I met a guy there who was a judo champion in New York, and he wanted to show me stuff. Basically, he made me a little throwing dummy, but I learned from it. And then when I got out, I began to pursue it with even more vigor. And so I've been doing martial arts most of my life. It's been my attitude. It's like the essence of who I am. And what's at the core of it is, for me, what's at the core of it is this idea of being in the moment and taking life as it comes. And I was really into uh, Japanese culture, samurai in particular, there was something about it that really attracted me, and I just would read voraciously about it when I was in my teen years. And there was a quote in a book that I can't remember somewhere, but there was a samurai describing how they don't fear death, or at that time, how they, they had no fear of death. It wasn't that they weren't afraid. It was that they had practiced so much the art of cutting, such that even I, I know, even as I am doing my own cut, the cut coming at me is going to take my life. But I'll never flinch. I will finish what I'm doing. Like the level of discipline in those words really struck me at 16, I think, when I read it. It was like so committed to the moment at hand, to completing what he had started. Even imminent death would not shake his conviction. So to mm-hmm. me, con- commitment and conviction kind of go hand in hand. I'm committed to bringing the best aspect of myself to each relationship I'm in according to what people can receive. So I'm not going to force myself on the people. I'm not going to force friendship on people. Or I'm not going to force my lust on anyone. I'm going to present who I am, and this is where vulnerability came in, I'm going to present myself vulnerably. This is what I would like. This is how I want to interact. And I extend my hand. So I'll come halfway. And if the other person is interested, they'll meet me halfway. And then we can go on a journey together in -hmm. collaboration. So for me, relationship anarchy amounts to consensual, mutual collaboration to create together whatever mm-hmm. we might be creating, whether it be a business, whether it be a sexual extravagance, whether it be this romantic interplay, whether it be a simply a platonic connection of kindred souls. All of it is right. valuable. And none of it's higher than any other. And it's just about discipline. Right. The discipline of practice. Discipline right. is really Thank just you. consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see how um, what we often call the other safer sex conversation or the emotional the emotional sex conversation um, would come in, would be very important in relationship anarchy where there's a conversation not just what have you been tested for and what, you know, what, what are your practices with other people, but also what are your expectations if we are to, 
to be become romantically involved. What are your expectations? Um, do you need me to call you afterwards? Do you need me to not call you afterwards? Um, those kinds of questions are even more important in this relationship style. Right, exactly. And for me, within that, coming to that understanding, I also began to understand that I had to be clear on what I needed. So... Right, that's a big I piece have one to friend. first know what we need, right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I think for a long time I didn't know who I was, which was a hell of a journey, and I kind of, I have a better idea of who I am right now, and now I'm, well, what I'm working on is what do I want, what, what's, what's in my desires, and what do I need, and with one friend who we kind of mutually agreed that we are, we are life partners, though our relationship is platonic, we did have a brief connection as lovers, but what was appropriate and what I understood was appropriate was that the sex is what drew us together, but it was something else that was going to keep us together. Because mm-hmm. sometimes sex can get in the way of relating. Right. Especially if we're not properly attuned. But we had a discussion about that, about wants and needs, and I just had this realization one day in one of our very intellectual discussions about relating that I was being driven by conditioning and status quo behavior to decide what I needed, what what I wanted, and I wasn't really attuned to what I needed. So I'm at the stage where in, in my head one of the desires I have is I'd like to have sex more often across a seven-day period. That's what I want. But actually what I need is more sensual experiences that aren't necessarily about sex, that involve Mm -hmm. the whole body, but that don't have this impetus towards a culmination of coitus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But just a sensual exploration. I mean, what that means is that I could go for a long, long time of just enjoying the experience of another person's presence and physicality and take our time doing it. Whereas to me, the the standard way that I've engaged in coitus is this rush, this rush to climax. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of times where I've been, I walk away like that was fun, but I feel kind of empty. I still mm-hmm. feel unsatisfied with the experience. And that was part of the realization of how important friendship is. So if I if we can't be friends, then why would I want to have sex with you? Right. Well, I can tell you as We're a woman, hearing you talk about wanting to have a long experience of connection and sensuality sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, as opposed <laughs> to the standard, you know, oh, we have to, for example, you know, the standard model of the man having to force himself to engage in, quote, foreplay. Um, Right. You know, so the woman will also be satisfied and so he can get what he needs. So I love the reframe of tuning into what you really are longing for, which is deep physical connection that's not necessarily aimed toward coitus or climax. It's actually really hard to think about that. (laughs) I yeah. I think so, and and certainly when I when I realized what that possibility was, it occurred to me 
you know, you can have sex over the course of weeks, conceivably, before it culminates in coitus. I mean, you could build the energy that way. It could. Be, that's the way I think we can take sex and use it as more than something to dissipate life, which is, is what most men tend to do is what we're inclined and conditioned to do. Is this a way to dissipate and discharge emotional energy? Mm-hmm. So when I began to look at it from that perspective, I realized I was wasting my sex. I wasn't using it. Like, I want my sex to exist for its own purpose. I don't use it to get over things. I don't use it to bypass things. I don't use it for anything other than what it exists for. It's pleasurable. So how can I extend mm-hmm. that pleasure? And from that perspective, then the focus on what relationship is opened up. Because then I wasn't driven by, well, you know, I got to, I'm attracted to them. How can I get them to be attracted to me? How can I get them to be interested in sex with me? How can I is this all of this work that was that is wasted. Because if if I'm convincing someone to do something, they're not enthusiastically inclined. The consent mm-hmm. is not enthusiastic. So then, of course, at the culmination, I mean, like, okay, we did that. And it's kind of fun because even even bad sex is relatively fun. Some people would disagree, but I'd say, you know, if, if you reach climax, something happened. It's not the greatest. It's not the most <laughs> exalted of situations, but it happened. Right. And in the status quo paradigm, you know, chalk went off on my list of accomplishments. But I'm going beyond that. I'm I'm saying that in order to live a life where I feel fulfilled in every moment, even if I don't get what I think I want, I know I'm getting what I need. So if I get rejected by a woman, and, and actually I don't even like that word. Rejected is a strong word, and it's a presumption and a projection. If I am in a situation where the timing isn't right and the vibe isn't right and my attraction isn't mutual, then that's still a gift because it gets me to wake up, okay, so there's something I didn't notice or there's more I need to notice or that's what's going on for me. And a lot of times I'm I'm pretty direct. And I think that turns off certain types of people. And other types of people, they love it. They want more. Be direct again. Tell me else what else you want. And it, it kind of puts me on my heels as I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know if that's really what I want. Because I'm at a place mm-hmm. where I, I'm working at making sure that what I want is what I need. And that's how I got to the understanding that a more sensual connection from a sexual place is what I need right now to wake me up further and to build energy, to cycle energy, to then take all of this pranic force, which is what sexual energy is, is this pranic energy. That's what the Indians have described it as in ancient mystics. And we can then take this and create in a different way because the most potent way to create is create a human life, to create a child. But there's other creations we can do with that energy that we've built up. Um, in one situation, I did a ritual with a friend who, who we were lovers for time, and she wanted partnership. And I told her, frankly, I'm not available for what you need because I have a 
an intuitive understanding of what it is you need. And I would like to be that person because I like you. But I, but I know I won't fulfill it because we have different paths. And so she kind of trusted me around doing a ritual. And so we did one that involved a little quote-unquote sex magic. And at the end of this exploration, she asked, well, do you need to be taken care of? And I was like, no. And so I took all of that energy and for about a week, it was just confined to supporting her. And she found the partner she wanted within three months. Now, oh, beautiful. it's a strong, I don't know that it's correlated. So also, as a mathematician, I also work from the perspective of scientific principle. But something happened. Either the energy we did and what, what I gave for them myself helped her become more concrete in her intention and attention or the energy just galvanized. I, I don't know what happened. We did, I mean, it wasn't, I'd like to do it as a scientific study. It'd be a fun one. <laughs> how, how does, <laughs> All right, how does ladies, if anybody wants to sign up for a sex magic ritual with Ken <laughs> to find your true partner, he's at your service. <laughs> Beautiful. It's interesting that you say that because I just signed up for a sex magic challenge in uh, one of my women's communities. Uh, yesterday was the first day, so it's interesting that you brought that up. It can be really powerful stuff. Yeah. And yeah. for people that don't yeah, know what so. that means, sex magic just means that you uh, make love in some way. It doesn't necessarily have to be intercourse, but you just raise sexual energy in your body, either alone or with a partner, and and then you imagine that that sexual energy is kind of like a prayer going off into the universe with whatever intention you're trying to create in your life. Yeah. And it can be very powerful. Focus, it's a way to help. Yeah, it's, it's a way to help focus intention, I think, would be probably a less mystical way to say it. And Correct. If we look at the way we engage in sex, generally, we do, in, we do stimulate certain kinds of things to happen. And so the sex, quote-unquote sex magic part of it is simply being meticulous about how we are intentioning what we do. Because our thought, thoughts are real. Thought forms are real. They're, they're vibrations mm-hmm. that we stimulate and create, and they have an effect on our body. So when we engage in sex with another person or multiple people, as the case may be, there's intentions involved, and that's when I go back to what I call my where to for it. So if I'm engaging sexually with someone and they have some unspoken desires and expectations, those are influencing our, our engagement sexually, and those are going to come out. And if we're not aligned, then whatever expectations they have are going to interfere with my expectations, and it's not going to be collaboration it's going to be clashing. And I think when we have that new relationship energy going, when we have that infatuation energy going, it's easy to overcome the clashing because we're a little deluded. We go, oh, it's not really what I saw. <laughs> but then that's, there's that three months. For me, it's three months. NRE lasts like three months. And then things start, then reality comes. You know, like, wait a minute, I know you were this fucking person. I thought it was just some cute thing you did. (laughs) 
So now, so now we're in trouble. And under the status quo, well, now i got to bail. But for me, in the relationship of anarchy, it's going to take a little longer to get there. But number one, for me, I no longer engage in NRE. I, I don't engage with people under that concept, oh, you're the most wonderful person that ever lived in the entirety of history. Uh, well, that's how I feel. I'm, I'm really infatuated with you, and I can see that um, fantasizing and projecting. So I'm going to stop. And to me, that's actually kind of mean to fantasize and project because you're not seeing the person as they really are. So right. I fight through the NRE, and I let it burn its way out, and I make sure that throughout it all I have this love and, and, and I let it run its course, but I also go, okay, they do this thing here, and I don't like it or this upsets me, or I don't like the way you touch me when we have sex, or this certain way you touch me, or I want to do this. Like, all of these things are still there. I'm still anchoring to the oxygen rather than the the nitrous. I just thought I compare NRE. NRE is nitrous. You know, nitrous oxide for a while, and then we start getting the oxygen to start coming out of it, and things start feeling real. Mm. Interesting, the person I interviewed last, or two weeks ago, last week I didn't have a show because it was 4th of July, but two weeks ago the person I interviewed also avoids NRE because of an addictive past. So it's interesting that my last Mm -hmm. two guests um, find ways around that because that can make, it's kind of a form of insanity for that period of time where um, you're you're thinking about that person all the time, you're not seeing all the parts of them, you're only seeing what you like, and and it feels good. It feels so good in your body that you want it to last. So it's it's a hard thing to say no to. So I, I commend you for being aware of that and doing that as a practice. Um, I'm going to have to bring us to a close here because we're almost out of time. Um, but I wanted okay. to thank you so much for being on the show and just give you another minute, minute and a half, um, if you'd like to offer anything to our listeners or say any final words. Um. I don't have any particular offers, but I am open to conversations. Um, people can find me on Facebook through you, I'm sure. If they want to chat or ask me more questions about what I'm up to or get some insights. Um, I teach Eskrima, it's a Filipino martial art, and I'm working on developing some self-defense discussions and workshops. So if people are interested in learning self-defense emotionally and physically, I'm available for that. Oh, that sounds really cool. Emotional self-defense. I love that. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, find Ken on Facebook. His name is on the the show here. Um, or you can reach out to me and I'll connect you with him. So thanks again, Ken, for being on the show. It was fabulous, really, really interesting and unique. And I really appreciate your vulnerability. Thank you, Sumati. Thanks for having me on and talking to me and letting me share my little piece of life. Okay, hon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.